Changemakers, welcome back to Cause Doc Radio. I'm Allie Murphy with Engage for Good. I'm feeling inspired, which honestly feels a little strange since at the time of recording this, Hurricane Ida recently made landfall, wildfires rage across the world, and the pandemic looms large. Plus, in my corner of the States, the smoke has been so bad that our AQI has ranged between 200 and almost 400, usually at the higher end of that scale, for days. Yet I'm feeling inspired because today's episode is all about crisis response and the timeline of disasters. And one crucial thing that today's guest, Alex Diaz, head of crisis response and humanitarian aid at google.org points out, is that there's a ton of opportunity to do good in this space. In just a minute, Alex will highlight how google.org approaches a crisis, how companies can think proactively when it comes to disaster response, what areas of disaster response could use more attention, how technology can improve response times, and how he and his team protect their own well-being, especially since their job revolves around constant crises. So if you're interested in starting or growing your company's crisis response program, are curious about Google.org's approach, or are wondering how you can leverage your various assets, not just cash, to do good in fighting disaster or in other areas, this episode is for you. And with that, let's get started. And welcome to Cost Talk Radio. Hey, Ali. Pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have you here today. And I feel like it's a an especially timely conversation. I know it's not going to air until the end of September, but right now, Hurricane Ida just hit. So would you talk about a little bit about who you are and the work that you do at Google.org? Yeah, happy to. My name is Alex Diaz. I'm the head of crisis response and humanitarian aid at Google.org. Uh, Google.org, just for those that don't know, was founded in 2005 and is Google's philanthropic and charitable arm. We support nonprofits that address humanitarian issues and apply scalable, data-driven innovation to solving some of the world's biggest challenges. We accelerate their progress by connecting them with a unique blend of support that includes funding, products, volunteers, uh, and really a huge emphasis on that volunteering, which is a, a big part of our approach where I believe around every year, Google volunteers are spending more than 200,000 hours with nonprofits bringing their passion, engineering expertise to, to, to accelerate the, the progress and work that nonprofits are leading. So we're here to talk about crisis response. Obviously, that's part of your title. Why is this important to Google as a whole? Yeah, I mean, Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. And there's no moment where that's uh, that mission is of a more paramount importance than in crisis settings. So crisis response has really been uh, embedded in Google's DNA. And the Google.org side, uh, it's, you know, where we're trying to support some of the world's most vulnerable uh, you, you're not going to find a, a more important setting to show up and stand uh, and step up than in those crisis settings. And in my role, I, I manage Google.org's response to crises around the world, where we do provide funding and volunteers to these nonprofits on the front lines. And I believe since 2016, uh, we've now donated over $45 million uh, to dozens of global crises. Okay, so let's talk about your approach. How do you actually approach a crisis? And maybe Hurricane Ida is an example of that, or maybe you want to give a different one. Yeah, it's a good question. The The way I look at the crisis work that we do is really along the timeline of a disaster. Um, and there's okay. work that we that we try and do before disaster even hits. And then there's a lot of the, the reactive stuff that, that you have to wait for a crisis to hit to, to respond to. Um, and I think, you know, one 
important part for us is with climate change worsening. And you're seeing that with with Ida, you're seeing that with the fires in the West and, and Turkey and Greece and elsewhere, is that more needs to be done in advance of these crises. Um, but yeah, happy to talk through our thinking, how we decide what to respond, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Why don't you start with what types of things you respond to and how that that process unfolds? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a, a, a variety of criteria that we are assessing. Well, first of all, there's we got to be monitoring crises all, around the world at all times to see, you know, is mm-hmm. this something that we can be uniquely helpful in, either with with funding or with volunteering? Um, and then there are several criteria that we that we try and assess to to decide um, when we can when we should activate. Um, knowing that there will always be a you know a larger need that we can potentially support um, because there are just crises happening around the world at any given time. Um, but one uh, one clear criterion is is magnitude. How large is this disaster? What are the impacts on you know loss of lives and livelihoods and displaced? Um, and another criteria that we take into account just because we we are a corporate philanthropy is you know is is a crisis happening in a place where near where we live and work? This isn't necessarily right. a, a yes no factor for us. We respond, you know, constantly to crises that are we, where we don't have a physical footprint. Like, for example, we responded to the earthquake in Haiti a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it's just another criterion that we take into account that can, you know, be, we want to make sure that we are standing alongside our employees and helping, uh, especially in our backyard. But you know, we're not limited to that. And you mentioned wildfires as well. I'm actually in the Pacific Northwest in Bend, Oregon, and it feels like apocalyptic smoke outside. So you talk a lot about, or you've talked so far, about kind of the pre-work that has to happen. Of course, there's reaction to disaster, and then there's building resiliency afterwards. How do you do the pre-work, and how do you support communities after? Yeah, it's a great question. On, I'll do the pre-work first. Uh, so one grant that can at least serve, serve as an example here we made last year to a, a group called Crisis Ready. They are a collaboration between Direct Relief, uh, which is a nonprofit that, that that we love that does you know important work in the in medical supply delivery and procurement space, um, and they are collaborating with Harvard School of Public Health uh, to create essentially a, a decision support tool in partnership with uh, the California Department of Public Health to start. Uh, but the the tool is essentially supposed to you know aggregate data sets. That are currently that currently exist. They're just in silos into one place that can be helpful um, to give real time situational awareness for some some needs, but can also be used for simulation. So, as an example, if you know where a fire is currently happening, um, you know where the evacuation routes might be, and you know something about that population. So, let's say uh, X percent uh, of folks that live in this area are diabetic. And you know where they are on dialysis machines, and you know where they are evacuating to. Oftentimes, the public health infrastructure that's receiving these folks doesn't know, you know, what they're about to be absorbing. So, with this system, can hopefully, hopefully, give a little bit more lead time to folks to be able to assess their stockpiles of, say, insulin or dialysis machines to be able to better service these populations when they're coming in. And importantly, the plumbing once it's built can be used for simulation, so you can run. Know, what's a you know a black swan event that can happen next year and you know do we have the the necessary materials on hand right now if not let's start you know piling up now in what we call blue skies as opposed to when when the crisis is on fire so these types of projects are really in our DNA to be you know supporting with funding and, and technical expertise 
um, that can bring the best of just data analytics to help improve the preparedness state of many places. You said black swan. Can you describe what defined a black swan for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, by black swan, I mean like a you know a, a rare once in a generation you know lifetime event, okay. which with climate change is happening much more frequently. So you should start treating these very very rare events as a little bit more regular um, to make sure that you're pre- as best prepared as you can for those. Got it. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, of course. After disaster. Yeah, after disaster, I think an important lesson that we've learned as we've rolled up our sleeves um, and as climate change has continued to rear its ugly head is that the recovery is longer. You know, with with more frequent and with with larger and, and more and more powerful disasters, you know, it's gonna it takes weeks, months, and frankly, years for folks to get back on their feet. So when we looked at the funding cycle where, where philanthropy and, and aid is traditionally focused, a lot of that is sucked up in the immediate relief where the, the disasters on the front page, you know, people are, are, are you know, pouring in uh, with their support. They're being very generous. But a lot of that is earmarked to the, you know, that immediate relief stage. Um, and six months out, nine months out after a disaster, you know, is no longer the front page, funds are dry. Uh, but there's still a lot of need on the ground. So one thing that we've been trying to do with our funding and working with an awesome partner uh, in the Center for Disaster Philanthropy is working to diversify our funding along that disaster cycle where some funding can be reserved or at least scoped from the front, from, 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 from the beginning, to some of these medium to longer term recovery projects that then starts to bleed into future preparedness and mitigation work uh, because, you know, especially, you know, some of this work is being led uh, by more local community-based organizations that are the fabric of their communities and they will be there the next time a disaster hits, um, making sure that they're getting some support to to do whatever they need to do to help their communities get back on their feet. This sounds, as you're talking about it, like an example of how you're you're being proactive in a way because you're using, you're scoping dollars in the beginning that aren't just going towards the immediate, but also post-disaster, which in turn, as you said, builds resilience for the future. So what are some ways that other companies could think about crisis management proactively rather than reactively? It's a great question. I'd say, you know, one, have a plan. Um, So, you know, what is your desired scope? Uh, What angles do you want to be supporting? What are your assets that you can bring to bear? Um, You know, funding is amazing, uh, but also, you know, do you have specific assets from your employee base or your product base that you can bring to bear to be helpful because there's no shortage of need. Uh, And then another thing I'd say is make sure that you're building these partnerships well in advance of a crisis. Like I think we often say you shouldn't be meeting for the first time on like in a crisis setting or in a crisis field. Like (laughs) no, no, just do that in advance. But way beforehand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So that when a crisis does hit, there's already a plan in place. You know what levers you can pull and then it's just about pulling them and executing quickly instead of, you know, reinventing things on the fly. So you've talked about some of your nonprofit partnerships. I know you support Center for Disaster Philanthropy. You have a partnership with Direct Relief, I think NetHope, and a couple others. How do these nonprofits help you achieve your goals and help you make the greatest impact? Yeah, it's not so much, I'd say, about our goals as it is about their goals. Uh, I think we're we're really just trying to be helpful. Um, From my perspective, if we're helping a nonprofit achieve their mission, especially a mission that's so aligned to helping people before disaster hits, then mission accomplished. Um, so that's that's kind of what I'd say is just what 
what do nonprofits need uh, and how can we be helpful in providing that? And oftentimes it is the technical talent that we have in abundance at Google, where we'll often hear from nonprofits like, yo, it's really hard for us to attract, hire, and retain technical talent. And I feel like y'all have a lot of it. And then what we hear from employees is, hey, I have a PhD in computer science or whatever the skill set is. And I want to use my talents for good and be a little bit more helpful. And this is really the genesis of something that, that I love that we do as a, as a team called the Google.org Fellowship, where we actually send full teams of employees on full-time secondment for up to six months to just build things. Uh, importantly, mm-hmm. it's building things for the nonprofit. And it's like led by the nonprofit and um, it, it's in line with their mission. But that's really where, where it, it, comes, it comes down to just really achieving their goals and often bringing whatever we can bring to bear, which is money, but also likely our people. I'm fascinated by the fellowship that you just brought up. And this is a a separate podcast um, that we actually did with Molly Ray, where we talked about Google employees that went and helped the Trevor Project, which I'll stick in the show notes for anybody that wants to listen. But logistically, I'm really curious, how do you have employees that up and I'm going to say, quote, leave their jobs at Google or Google.org for six months and go work somewhere else? How do you backfill and make sure everything's covered on your end so that business keeps running? It's really the culture, I'd say. You know, we we have really supportive managers where, uh, the especially for the crisis setting, like you, there's no clearer clearer example of like using your talents for good than supporting projects in this space. But that rings true for all of our fellowships. Like these nonprofits that we're supporting are just doing awesome, awesome work up and down. And you know, were it not for the support of their managers and leadership, the fellowship would have been dead on arrival. But Thankfully, that's just not the right. culture at the company. So we're really, really blessed that we have that type of support internally. So does that mean team members of someone who's going to go work somewhere else for six months adjust their workload and things are done with managers? Like, how do you actually make it work? Yeah, I mean... Because the supportive culture is awesome, but there's also things that have to get done, right? Right, right. I mean, there are a whole bunch of mechanisms that that, that folks can deploy. So you can have temporary rotations on a team. That's another you know big thing mm. that Google does is, you know, we encourage what we call bungees. Um, you can work to hire like a, a, a temporary employee that can have like an on-ramp to other opportunities at Google. Um, so there are just different mechanisms that that, that exist that teams can deploy to make sure that the the bandwidth is not being wholly consumed because someone has left for six months. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And I like the also the hiring temps with an on-ramp to other possibilities. So you're opening up different avenues. Back to kind of advice for others. What advice do you have for companies where crisis response or disaster response is already a part of their CSR efforts, but they're looking to innovate or maybe bolster that program? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say um, think about two things, intervention angle um, and timeline. I think, as I mentioned earlier, with the timeline of a disaster, we need to be doing a lot more on the pre-disaster timeline space or way after a disaster has hit. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been really, really increasingly interested on that pre-disaster timeline space and how we can be supporting, especially from a technical perspective, there's a a nascent field called uh, anticipatory action, uh, which is word salad for using (laughs) data analytics, predictive analytics to just trigger earlier, better informed uh, action. So for example, just today, uh, well, I guess this is going live September 29th. So uh, we recently announced a grant to 
the United Nations uh, Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. There's a team there called the Center for Humanitarian Data. That's been, you know, the OCHA at the UN is the the convening body, the you know organizing body at the UN that helps coordinate the response to disasters for the humanitarian sector. And they have this team called the Center for Humanitarian Data that is like this data analysis backbone for the sector. And they've been pushing anticipatory action um, as like the way forward to just improve preparedness and early action. So we gave them a grant to just scale their agenda so that more more countries um, can just take better advantage of the data analytics that might exist or build that capacity to do better preparedness. So back to the advice, think about what timeline, what part of the timeline you can be supporting and where you think is most relevant for you to plug in. And then on intervention angle, what I mean by that is there's so many ways that when you are responding to a crisis, you can be helpful. Um, but there's so many different angles that you can take. One intervention angle that we are uh, are big proponents of, uh, and not that it's a panacea, but it, it, it is helpful. And there's evidence to back it is direct cash transfers. Mm-hmm. Um, so when a disaster hits, uh, one of the more efficient ways to meet so many different needs that arise after crisis hits, you know, a tree fell on my car or I need to get medications for my grandparents or, you know, I need to get formula for my child. You know, instead of working to match specific needs, uh, you know, with donations, you could just give people cash uh, and, mm-hmm. and allow them to make their own decisions for what they need. Uh, it's quick it's, it's, and it's a little bit more efficient. Um, so thinking about what angles uh, you'd like to be supporting and building evidence for and de-risking. Um, but for, for those that want to bolster their, their programs, there's so much that can be done. There's so much need. So really just, you know, bring bring the best assets you can bear to, to help out. So you've been at Google.org for about two years. Is that right? Yeah. If you could go back and talk to yourself in your first few months on the job, knowing what you know now, what's one thing you'd tell your former self? Good question. Let me think about it for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so much that I've learned. Uh, I, 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 we could do I, two. Yeah. Um, really, the coupling of money and volunteering uh, from the outset being something that should be like the first order of thinking. I think I learned that because that's part of the Google.org's DNA, but I didn't come in with that knowledge. Okay. Um, and then one thing that, I mean, I have my, my backgrounds in policy, so I'm, 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 a, I'm a policy walk and a policy nerd. And it's something that I think I brought into the job, but I think I learned over time uh, is important is the like institutional adoption of work that gets done via philanthropy. Um, and just being very intentional about what is that longer term vision of projects that you are supporting. I think often what you'll find in philanthropy is just a, a proliferation of funding for pilots for pilot's sake and trying to change that thinking to being like, well, actually, what about uptake? How does this get uptake by institutional aid actors or government if it makes sense? And the role that I see like philanthropy playing, like no, playing, you know, no one's voting us into power to do these things. And I take seriously like the accountability that comes with that. Um, but what we can do is potentially de-risk certain innovations, help create an evidence base, and then hand it over to the folks that do have that public accountability and say, hey, like, have you thought about cash transfers as an intervention to respond to disasters? Um, and then have that dialogue and, you know, leave it up to them to decide. But at least you're helping um, with a potential on-ramp for future broader scale 
as opposed to just at a very tiny, like experimental pilot approach. Another question for you, mental health and well-being has become so much more of an open topic in the last couple months, 18 months since before COVID. And I'm guessing that working in a sector like yours can be really challenging. How do you and your team cope with crises and disasters being the main part of your job? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if I have the perfect answer. Um, it, it's in incredibly important to unplug. Uh, you, you know, these you can easily get worn down if you're just reading about catastrophe after catastrophe. Um, I'm a I'm a news junkie, so I'm kind of used to reading about bad news given like the negativity <laughs> bias in the media. Um, so it doesn't affect me as much, but you, you need to unplug. You need to take those weeks uh, where you can just, you know, be on vacation, be 100% confident that you, whoever's covering for you has it. Um, and then Google thankfully has a lot of, uh, resources that they make available for employees that, um, that I take advantage of certainly, um, to just make sure that we are, you know, you know, processing things in a, in a healthy way and not burning out. Um, I think it's the right thing for me. It's the right thing for the team. So I'm happy that Google makes these resources available and, and, and certainly encourage all, um, at the company and elsewhere to take advantage of, of whatever they have. Absolutely. And it's such an important topic right now. And I'm glad that I got to ask you about it. And I think it's really hard for a lot of people to unplug, even those that don't work in a crisis or disaster space or a hospital, where if you don't answer an email, it's okay. It's hard, but it's nice to hear people say that it's important. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, there, there could be you know, shame and stigma attached to it. And that's just that's on the culture and like teams to be supportive to, to root that out. There should be no shame or stigma about folks dealing with mental health problems or mental health, you know, complications. I would like a billboard that says that. What is your favorite thing about working at Google.org? There's so much I love about .org. I mean, cliche, but the people are, are dope. Um, super smart, super eager, just really, really thoughtful group of folks. And I think the second thing I'd say is just the opportunity. Um, there are a few places that I've seen in, in the marketplace that where you can go from idea to action with significant resources in such a short period of time. And that I mean that that's what gets me going every day is being able to know that I can come to work, work on some very interesting, complicated problems, but have uh, a meaningful way to help uh, with backing of leadership. So that opportunity is something I don't take lightly. It's a, it's a blessing. It's a privilege. And I'm happy to, to, to do it. So People and uh, the opportunity are, are two things I really cherish about the work I do at .org. I love it. And it's been such a pleasure to chat with you. If people want to learn more about you and the work that you guys do at .org, where can they do that? Good question. You can follow us on Twitter uh, or LinkedIn. I think that's the those are two easiest ways to track what we're up to. Awesome. Well, I will include links to those as well as the Trevor Molly Ray podcast that I mentioned in the show notes. And Alex, it was a pleasure to have you to hear a little bit about the work that you're doing, how you respond to crises and the incredible opportunity there is that there is out there to do work in this space. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Ali. Pleasure to be here. Happy to be here. Cause Talk Radio is a production of Engage for Good in partnership with True Story FM. Engineering by Pete Wright. Music by Rex Banner and Elad Perez. Thank you for listening. If your podcast app allows you to rate and review, we'd appreciate it if you would do just that for our show.